having an amazing morning so far. Today, I'm going to be talking about confidence. As we start, I want to ask everyone here a question. Who is the greatest babysitter mentioned in the Bible? David, because he rocked Goliath to sleep. <laughs> On that note, you might be able to guess that. Today, I will be speaking about David and Goliath. Some of you may remember the story of David and Goliath as the courageous hero David slays the big scary giant. The truth is, sometimes we are so focused on the success that we actually fail to see the come up. You see, David did not have the physique or the look of a so-called war hero. He was actually a young boy who spent his time in the fields tending his sheep, playing his harp, and practicing his slingshot. If David were here today, he wouldn't be a part of the in crowd and he for sure wouldn't be popping. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's where I will be speaking out of today. In verse 28, it says, When David old, David's oldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the soldiers, he got very mad at David. Why did you come down here, he said. Who is watching those few sheep for you in the wilderness? I know how arrogant you are in your devious plan. You came down just to see the battle. And in verse 29, David says to Eliab, What did I do wrong this time? Have you ever felt this feeling before? The feeling of not being good enough or questioning if you're doing anything right. In verse 33, Saul says to David, you are still a boy, but he who is Goliath has been a warrior since he was a boy. What we fail to realize is that even though David was being told that all odds were against him, he knew that God had a plan for him. In verse 34, David says to Saul, And if ever a lion or bear came and carried off one of my flock, I would go after it, strike it, and rescue the animal from its mouth. If it turned on me, I would grab it at its jaws, strike it, and kill it. Listen to this next part. The Lord, David said, who rescued me from the power of both lions and bears, will rescue me from the power of the Philistine. Now, I know we may all be thinking that's easier said than done to have the type of faith that David had. David was offered armor. He denied the armor. He instead chose to use five stones and a rock as his weapon of choice. To everyone else, this may have seemed like the wrong decision, but David knew that he was covered by God and God alone. The truth is, we can learn from David's confidence because David was God-confident, not self-confident. He was God-confident, not self-confident. You see, I relate to David. I always had people making me feel inferior based on my looks. I was always tall, lanky, skinny, all of that. I had people making fun of me constantly. Due to this, I would spend countless hours in my room alone. I refused to participate in anything unless I was forced. Because of this, I developed depression at a very, very young age. People will always have something to say about you. I didn't realize this soon enough. From allowing people with me to feel inadequate, somebody eating disorder, self-doubt, loads of depression, and loads of anxiety. But when I stopped allowing people's opinions to dictate how I see myself worth, I realized that I was covered by God. I realized that God had given me the tools to overcome my Goliath. You see, maybe there's some of you in here who feel like you're not smart enough. In Proverbs 2, 6, it says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. The Lord gives us our intellect. The Lord gives us our intelligence. Maybe you, there's some of you in here who feel unloved. 
In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his one son to die on the cross for us. God gave his one son to take away the hurt, the pain, everything, to give us a new clean slate because he loves each and every one of you so much. This leads me to step two. Identify the gifts that God has placed in your life. Let me repeat that. Identify the gifts that God has placed in your life. And y'all want to know what David did once he identified his gifts? Put on some sunglasses and blocked out the haters. <laughs> Maybe someone's telling you you're not enough. Guess what? God says you are enough. You just need to block out the haters. Maybe someone's telling you that you're too big, too skinny, too fat, too ugly, all of that. Guess what? God says you were created in his image, in his image alone. You are the child of a most high king. You just need to block out those haters. You see, all David had was a stone and a slingshot. What seemed to be so insignificant was, in fact, all he needed to slay that giant. Everything that you need has already been placed in your life by God. You just have to identify it. Here at Anchor Bend, we have a way to help you identify your gifts. If you don't know where to start, it's called Next Steps. Next Steps is a four-step process that gives you the tools needed to identify your gifts. You see, David knew that God would never break his promise. What others tried placing on David, he knew didn't belong to him. David knew that his confidence and armor came from God and only God. Thank you. All right, all right. Good morning, Anchor Ben. That was an awesome message. Today, I get to talk to you about David being anointed as king. But can I just first say, I love this story. Because as a person who watches and loves a lot of movies, I can't help but see the underdog theme in David's life. It's kind of like the, the Rocky series where Rocky has to go against uh, Apollo Creed. Or the Rudy has to make the football team at Notre Dame. It's those type of things that, that get us in our fields and get the blood pumping. I want to start in 1 Samuel 16, 10 through 13. But first, I'd like to give you some context onto where David's at at this point in his life. You see, the nation of Israel has cried out for a king to rule over them, and a man named Saul was appointed. But during his reign, he made some decisions that caused the anointing of God to leave him. And it's noteworthy to point out that this is where we get the popular phrase in Scripture, obedience is greater than sacrifice. God now tells Samuel, the people have chosen their king, but I have chosen another. I need you to go to the most unexpected place the house of Jesse out of Bethlehem because I've chosen a king, one of his sons. Samuel goes there and invites him into sacrifice, and the first thing that he notices is their appearance. But God being God and the only person that can speak directly to our heart says, Samuel, do not consider their appearance or their height because man looks at the outward, but God looks at the inward. He looks at the heart. We pick up in verse 10, 1 Samuel 16. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? Probably confused at this point. They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance. 
and handsome features. The Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Can we just pause for a moment and be in David's shoes? Isn't that the most underdog thing that could happen? Is that here's David coming in from the field, hot, sweaty, tan, and dark. And he's overlooked. He's underqualified. And he's not trained. He has no military background. And yet this is God's chosen. You see, the text above says that God chose David because of his heart. But in prepping for this message, the one thing that I kept asking myself is, what separated David's heart from the rest? Because there were seven of his brothers that he, that he, that was separated him. And the first being, the first point, the test came in the field. You see, extraordinary moves of God begin with ordinary acts of obedience. And the Bible never specifically says that David aspired to be a king, but what it says is that he had one job, and that was to shepherd the flock. And I read that story, and I wonder that how many times that David had to do the ordinary thing. How many times he had to lead the sheep out to the field, defend the sheep from the, the lions and the bears, feed the sheep, care for the sheep all the time, not knowing that he was in the training grounds to be a king. And I'll tell you why. God was working behind the scenes. You see, while David was leading the sheep, God was showing him how to lead the nation. And while David was playing his lyre skillfully in the field, God was showing him how to write the book of Psalms. You see, because what we do in private, God rewards in public. And I wonder how many of us right now can relate to David doing the ordinary thing. Maybe it's raising the family that you have or the job that you're in or the job that you want. The one thing that we can remind ourselves is that God uses the most unexpected and the most ordinary things to build our character, to switch our hearts, and to position our hearts for great things. And my question to you is that if you knew that God was behind the scenes in the place that you're at right now, getting your setup ready, I wonder if it would change the way you looked at it. You see, a while back, I was working for a company in downtown, and I was striving to learn the business side of it. But what I ended up doing was almost the exact opposite. It was all the hard, strenuous labor side of, of everything. And I made a commitment to God. I said, God, whatever it takes, I'm going to do this. But about two months in, after being the yes man, the only way that I can describe it is that I felt broke. I felt broke because I was better than that. I felt like I was better than that. I felt like I could do this a different way. And on the worst day possible, my manager came in there and he asked me, hey, I need you to clean the restrooms before you go home. And it was, of course, it had to be on the worst day that he had to ask me. And I, and I remember going in there. I still went in there. That's the important thing. I still went in there. But I hated, I hated the world. I hated the world going into those restrooms. And that's the important thing about God is that he'll meet us at the high points and he'll meet us at the low points. I felt, I felt God in that restroom tell me, I thought you said whatever it takes. Which brings me to my second point, trust the process. Christine Kane says, you have to embrace God's process to experience his promise. You see, like David, we have to become satisfied in the field, doing the ordinary, before we can experience the breakthrough to the promise. And I wonder how many of us are in the process, coming out of the process, or about to go into the process, out of our comfort zones, and challenging the day-to-day task. My God moment that restroom ended with me deciding I was going to clean those restrooms so good that people go in there and get saved. And I want to encourage you with this today, that the same God who chooses underdogs is still alive today, and the same God who knows us from the inside out is still alive today, and the same God who works behind the scenes, he's still at work today. So embrace it. Your breakthrough's coming.
Today, I want to talk to you about finding your tribe, because the truth is we all need friends. Now, I'm not talking about your social media friends, because how many of you know you'll be scrolling through Instagram, see a post, click on it, and end up going on this whole search to try to figure out who this person is and why you're following them. In Proverbs 18:24, it says, a man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. One of the things that inspires me the most about David is the fact that although he was a great leader, he was still vulnerable enough to hold a great and accountable relationship with Jonathan, the son of King Saul. It says in 1 Samuel 18:1 that there was an immediate bond between David and Jonathan, for Jonathan loved David. Jonathan was there for David through some of the most difficult times throughout David's life. Even when Jonathan's own father was determined to kill David, Jonathan did what he could to protect his friend. Jonathan and David were literally ride or die friends, like ride or die. <laughs> if it wasn't for Jonathan, David really could have been killed. I remember first coming to Anchor Bend, I wasn't really looking for any new friends. I didn't want to get plugged in or involved simply because I wanted to prove I was fine on my own. What I eventually realized is that the feeling of wanting to be alone actually came from past hurt and from people who had let me down. I did really get exhausted from trying to find my purpose on my own because, I mean, honestly, it's exhausting. And so I reached out, went to Next Steps, graduated, and chose to serve in Children's. And it's here where I met some of the most loving people and humble leaders who helped me realize what serving with a good heart should look like. Then I joined a small group. Shout out to Anchorman Young Adults. Woo -woo. But even at this point, I still didn't understand how important it was to have people by your side. In Genesis, it says, from the creation of mankind, God saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he created Eve for Adam. So even from the beginning of creation, it's very clear that we were made to be in relationships. We were never designed to do life alone. So I want to give you three steps to help you find your tribe. And the first one is to find your purpose. So to connect with the right people, you have to first know who you are, which means you have to discover your own gifts and your own talents. And just like Camden said earlier, Next Steps is the place for that. Then to unlock that purpose, you must serve your purpose. It's where I served, where I met people with a, that had a heart for children just like I did. Because common passions connect people. So if you love children, get involved with children's ministry. If you love worship and music, join Infuse. Which brings me to my second step, which is to reach out. A lot of times we ask God to send us a Jonathan or a best friend, but let's be honest, we haven't even actually reached out to people. Now, not only do you reach out to people like you, but you also reach out to people you want to be like. You should always pursue one or two relationships that will make you better and help you grow. Let me tell you something. People can't take you where they've never been. We can literally, like literally, choose our friends. So what are we waiting for? Join a small group. In fact, we actually launch summer small groups next week. Woo -woo. And you can sign up. You can sign up today in the foyer. And the third thing is to protect your tribe. So once you've discovered your gifts and your talents and reached out to those like you, the last thing you have to do is actually keep your friends which actually can, pre, can be difficult, especially with social media, because it creates this facade that we're in a relationship with a lot of people. However, these relationships are only surface level. Real relationships require intentionality. Real friendships comes with deposits and withdrawals. It's a give-take relationship. It's not always all about you. And friendships require loyalty. 
In spite of Saul's agenda to kill David, Jonathan remained loyal to his friend because of the commitment that he had made. So just like Jonathan, we should choose commitment over convenience. I think we can all admit that we've been on the receiving end of a friend being there when it's only convenient for them. (coughs) Fake. (laughs) Or whenever they walk away for the smallest little offense or error. Or maybe, or we've, experienced, we've all experienced that conditional level of friendship. But God has called us to seek after his ways. He's called us to love people unconditionally. That means that sometimes your friendships aren't always going to be easy. They aren't always going to be convenient for you. Sometimes showing up is the hardest part. But you have to be that friend and have that friend that's going to be there even when it's hard. On the big days and the bad days. When I found my tribe, I honestly didn't realize that they could truly love and protect me. I could barely even reach out to them without feeling like I was an inconvenience for them. But I did decide to show up and and participate anyways and build that community. A few months later, I ended up in the hospital to have a heart procedure done, which ended in quite a few complications and a lot of days in the hospital. Now, for me, these days would have been very lonely, except while I was there, people called, people text me, people visit me every single day. You know who these people were? They were my friends from small group. They were my leaders, and they were the people that served with me, the people that loved me. And I realized in this moment that I had found my tribe, that the community that I had built wasn't just there on the easy days, but there on the hard days too. And just like David probably felt, it's freeing to know that you have people in your corner. Never forget that you were built to do life together. You don't need a thousand friends or to be insta-famous, but you do need a Jonathan. Today, I'm going to be talking about upping your serve game or truly learning how to live the life of a servant. And now I know some of you may already be thinking like, Jolea, I'm going to stop you right there because I go to work every day or I take care of two crazy monsters, I mean toddlers, every day. I promise you I serve enough. You may even be thinking, I'm actually trying to get to the place where I don't have to serve anybody anymore ever again. And I get it because for most of my life, that was my goal too. I believed that true success meant that I would be served and not be the servant. It wasn't until I came to Anchor Bend that I began to realize that God's economy doesn't work the same way the world's economy does. In fact, God pours into us so that we can pour out to others. Galatians 5.13 says, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Instead, serve each other humbly in love, which means where the world may tell you to use your gifts and your talents to serve yourself, God calls us to serve each other. Serving is the goal. And what I admire the most about David is that even though he became king, he never stopped serving. In fact, his heart to serve is what makes him one of the most memorable kings ever mentioned in the Bible. And if we can learn anything from David, it is that serving positions us for promotion. Job 36:11 says, "If they obey and serve God, then they will live out their lives in peace and prosperity. When we serve joyfully, we align ourselves with God's will for our lives. 
In 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 35, we see David volunteering to fight Goliath because in the field where he served faithfully for years, it actually was a training ground, giving him the strength, endurance, and energy that he needed to defeat Goliath. Being in a place of service is what prepared David for battle. He proves that God uses our seasons of serving as a setup for success. And when I think about serving, setting us up for promotion, I always think about my girl Summer on the small groups team. How many of you guys love Summer? You see, I love this girl because Summer didn't join the team looking for any kind of recognition. She joined because she was called there. And so any task she received, she gave her all with a joyful heart and a good attitude. And y'all, I can't even count how many times this girl has asked, how can I help? What else can I do? What else do you need? But you see, now Summer is the coach over the small groups team. And what we see is that her serving led to elevation because what, we, what she learned at every level equipped her to lead at a higher level. And the same goes for all of us. What we learn at every level equips us to lead at a higher level. And where do we learn? In the serve. So here are two ways to serve. One is to give up your time, talents, and treasures freely. 1 Peter 4.10 says that God has given each of you a gift but from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them to serve one another. Opportunities to, to make a difference come when we serve. I mean, how can you care and bring light to a hurting friend if you don't show up with a meal or help with carpool or just take 30 minutes out of your day to call and check in with them? People won't always remember what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And serving connects to the heart. And if you ever feel like you are too busy to serve, you have to remember that Jesus, the Son of God, served too. In fact, in Mark 10, 45, it says that for even the Son of Man came not to have service rendered to him, but to serve and to give of his life as ransom for many. And if Jesus' purpose was to serve, we should be running towards opportunities to do the same. And number two, just ask. Now, I'm going to take a poll, but I need you all to be honest with me, okay? Okay? Okay. How many of you have ever seen somebody struggling and then pretended like you didn't? Like, oh my gosh, I didn't see you carrying those 15 chairs until you put them down. Like, I'm so sorry. You see, serving is like working a muscle. We have to keep doing it. We have to keep looking for opportunities, keep asking, how can I help? What else can I do? What else do you need? How can I help? What else can I do? What else do you need? And if you ask that enough, soon it'll be planted in your heart. Because you see, when your focus shifts, God can really start to work. I love how Christine Kane says, God doesn't ask, are you capable? He asks, are you willing? So are you willing? Are you willing to serve your spouse even when you don't feel like giving anymore? Are you willing to work that little bit of overtime to help out your coworkers? Are you willing to join the dream team so that others can experience God's love through your life? You have to remember that on this journey, the best life that we can live is one where our serve games are strong. 
Raise your hand if you've ever played sports as a kid. All right, yeah, everyone. Raise, keep your hand up if you played dodgeball. I remember what it was like playing dodgeball. I also remember what it was like picking teams. It went something like this. Hey, Josh, you want me on your team? Okay, no, all right. Mark, you want me on your team? Okay, Josh, dude, I'm your brother. You better pick me. I'm going to go tell mom. I knew that if I was the last person picked on the team, that meant that they didn't want me. They were stuck with me, right? And if there was an odd number of kids, that meant I was not going to play because nobody wanted me, right? Rejected. Now, it's been a long time since I played dodgeball. Probably the same for everybody out here too, right? But throughout life, we experience different types of rejection. Has anybody applied for a job recently? You thought you were going to get it, but you didn't? Rejected. Guys, maybe you saw a beautiful woman. I'm going to go ask her out on a date. Hey, baby, you want to go help me? No. Rejected. I want to talk to you about rejection and acceptance. Now, we've heard a lot about King David this morning, but I want to introduce you to Mephibosheth. We first hear about him in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. There we learn that Mephibosheth, at the age of five years old, was dropped, and the fall left him crippled from his legs for the rest of his life. Not only was he crippled, he was also the grandson of King David's enemy. In his time, Mephibosheth would have lived a life of rejection because he was crippled and because he would have been seen as a threat to the throne of King David. But King David was a different type of king. King David was a kind king. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, we read that David asked, Is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I might show God's kindness to? See, David had experienced God's kindness in his own life, and this motivated him to show kindness to others, even showing kindness to his enemies. David had learned to accept those who others had rejected. And for those of us here today who have experienced the kindness of God, we too have learned to accept those that others have rejected. As we continue to read on in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see that David told Mephibosheth, you have a seat at my table always. And then it says that Mephibosheth ate at the table of King David, and he was counted as one of David's own sons. It's a beautiful story of going from rejection to acceptance. David invited a so-called enemy into his home. He gave him a seat at the royal table, and he made him part of his family. It's a beautiful story. I love this story. But if this is the first time you've ever heard the story, then you might, you might think, I have a lot in common with David. And that might be true. But could I get you to consider that maybe, maybe we have more in common with Mephibosheth. See, just like Mephibosheth, who was crippled, we all come to King Jesus crippled by our own sin. But Jesus is a good king that heals the crippled. In Luke chapter 5, 17 through 39, it tells us that Jesus healed the sick and he forgave them of their sins. And just like Mephibosheth, who did not deserve to sit at the table with King David, though we come to King Jesus not deserving to sit at his table, he accepts everyone who comes. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, it tells us that Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus accepts those who others reject. And the beautiful thing is, the beautiful thing is that 
None of us deserve to sit at this table with Jesus. But Jesus paid the price so that we could sit at that table with him. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And just like Mephibosheth, who's from the wrong family, the family that was the enemy of King David, just like Mephibosheth, it does not matter what family you come from. Jesus wants to accept you into his family. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But to all, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. If you believe in Jesus, if you receive Jesus, you are given the right by God to be called his child. He accepts you into his family. Now, I don't know what kind of rejection you might have walked in here with today. But I want you to know. No, God wants you to know. God wants you to know that he didn't pick you because he was stuck with you. He picked you because he wants you. God wants you. God accepts you. You are not rejected by God. It is by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection that God accepts you into his family if you love, trust, and believe in him. You are accepted by God. So as you guys just heard, David was a mighty warrior. He slayed a giant, he led Ezra to victory, and he even killed a lion and a bear with his own hands. But he also wrote songs for God. He played the harp and the lyre, and he just loved to be in God's presence. And if you read through the life of David, you'll notice there's a common thread all throughout his life. From when he was just a little shepherd boy, and even after he was crowned king, there was something that David did that he didn't seem to waver on, regardless of his circumstances. He worshiped. David was a worshiper. He worshiped through his sins, his fears and failures, and even through his victories, he was constantly worshiping. And I believe it's the reason why God himself would declare David as a man after his own heart, because he understood the power of worship. Now, for those of you who know me, you're probably wondering, now why is she speaking on worship? She can barely carry a tune, much less clap on beat. <laughs> and while that is true, I won't deny it, worship is more than just vocal talent or natural rhythm. And the truth is, from the very beginning, the enemy has tried to steal the worship away from God and shift your worship to something else that's not God. So David was one of the primary authors of the book of Psalms, which is not only one of the biggest books in the Bible, but it's basically our guide to praise and worship. So I want to talk about three things that we can learn from David's worshipful lifestyle. First, worship is love expressed. In 2 Samuel 6, the Bible records the moment when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into Jerusalem, which is where the presence of God resided back then. So it was a big deal. And I want to show you David's reaction at that moment. In verse 14, it says, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord. In other translations, it says he danced with great abandon before God. So as you can see, David fully engaged his heart in worship to God. And then it goes on to say in verse 16, his wife Michael watched from a window and she saw King David leaping and dancing before God, but she despised him in her heart. So his heart of worship is on full display, overflowing into this passionate dancing and celebration. Can you imagine how crazy he would have looked? That's like the equivalent of having Pastor Jim come up here and try to do the Dougie. 
or the woe. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was obvious David didn't care what others thought of him. He wasn't prideful. He set aside his ego because he knew that God was worthy to be praised. Worship is love expressed. Let me say it like this. It's not worship if it's not love, and it's not worship if it's not expressed. Now, now how many of you guys have ever heard a, a song, a catchy song with a dope beat that makes you just want to dance? Yeah? How many of you guys have, have a breakup song that you listen to that just makes you want to bawl your eyes out? <laughs> or how many of you guys have a favorite football team that you would scream and shout down when they make that touchdown? Go Texans! I mean, go Cowboys! <laughs> so in the same way we would scream and shout for our favorite football team is the same way we should scream and shout for the God who loves us, the God who made us, the creator of this universe. Secondly, worship is a response. So over and over in Psalms, I would read as David is crying out to God. He's sharing his hurts, his distress, his anger, but then he praises him for who he is. And then his enemies are literally pursuing him. His life is just a complete mess. And then David continues to worship him. Yeah, I feel like my journal has looked a lot like Psalms at different points in my life. Words written with tears in my eyes, words written in the darkest of moments, prayer after prayer, crying out to God to help me, to sustain me, to show me the way forward. But my prayers didn't end with pain. They ended with praise because worship was my response. <laughs> worship changes your perspective from you to him. And it's a reminder and a declaration of how big and almighty God is compared to your circumstances. <laughs> worship him through the pain and praise him through the victories. So let worship be your response. Lastly, worship is a weapon. You know, we often forget that we are at war. The Bible teaches us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And since our battle is spiritual, our weapons have to be spiritual. Worship equips us to war against evil with the power and presence of God. Psalms 22.3 says, God inhabits the praises of his people. And I believe it's for him to accomplish his goodwill. I'm so completely convinced of the power that it, the victory that's available in worship. In 1 Psalm 16, 16, 14 to 23, we learn that King Saul had a spirit that would torment him. And whenever the spirit came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief came to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. His worship changed the atmosphere. In Acts 16, 25 to 26, we learn that Paul and Silas have been in prison. So they start praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And then came a great earthquake that unfastened the prisoners' chains. Their worship ushered in the power to literally break chains. As they worshiped, not only were physical chains broken, so were spiritual ones. The jailer and his entire family got saved that night. See, Paul and Silas had learned that worshiping and praising God is not merely a response to his grace, but it's a weapon of spiritual warfare. Worship is a weapon. This is how I fight my battles. Worship is love expressed. Worship is a response. And worship is a weapon. How will you choose to worship? Come on. Come on, give it up for all the fellowship. Wasn't it good this morning? We love you guys. Go ahead and stay standing up this morning. How many know we're in good hands? I, you know, I'm so proud to pastor a church of young people and old people and middle-aged people, black people, white people, Hispanic people, African people, Asian people. 
Indian people. I think our church looks a lot like heaven. And so our call. You know, the, the charge is to bring heaven to earth. And that's what I love about Sundays is it's really this charge and the, the, the inspiration of, okay, God, now I've got to go live it out. You know, I, I don't want to just make it to heaven. You know, I, I think it's going to be great, and I think there are going to be some people that we're going to be surprised they're in heaven, and they made it, and that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, when we get there, we won't, but now we'd be like, whoa, wow, really, you made it? Undercover Christians, you know what I'm talking about. Just, I don't want to just barely make it. Can we bring heaven to earth? Can we, can we empower our young people and, and, and let them begin to step up? And then look even for each and every one of us. I, I, I believe the gospel demands a response. That for us in our lives, you know, you walk through situations and circumstances. But the truth is, you will never know the quality of your faith till you walk through the valley. And it's what we do in the valley. It's what we do in the midst of the pain. It's what we do in the opportunity of distraction. Listen, your life can be going good, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't really get distracted in the bad times because I'm pretty desperate, but it's sometimes in the good times. Marriage is doing good. Kids are acting like angels instead of devils. And, you know, the, the, the life is going well, and it's sometimes we can get lulled to sleep. And I wonder even... You know, in our lives this morning, it's like, God, I don't want to fall asleep. I don't want to get pacified by the things of this world. You're raising up an army, and we're an army of worshipers, an army that understands what it means to be Christ followers. And, you know, I recognize there are some of you here this morning, you may not be a Christ follower. In fact, if you guys just bow your head and close your eyes, I want to speak to you for just a moment. You know, you're in a church and a safe place. And I would say most of us here have an authentic relationship with God. We are what you would call Christ followers. We're not perfect, but we're pursuing after God. And we're doing everything we can to live the life God's called us to live. And what we recognized, and I can articulate it as, as the heartbeat of every person that has received the gift of salvation, is before I received salvation, I was lost I was broken on the inside, and I'm telling you, I'm not done being worked on. God's still working on some inside things in my life, but I can tell you this, I'm no longer dead and dying. I'm alive. And the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wage of sin is death, and that's why we feel dead on the inside. When God is not at the center of our life, when we've never surrendered our life to Him, and that's what the Bible calls salvation, that we believe in Jesus then what happens is we're living in this death. Our, our, our spirit is dead. Our life is dead. No, we're breathing. We've got a pulse, and we're going to work, and we're doing life. But the truth is you have that feeling like I'm dying on the inside. Something is wrong. And I'd have to tell you, you have assessed the situation correctly. Without God, something is wrong because he put a God-shaped hole inside of your heart, and the only thing that will fill it is him. And you say, well, what do I do in a moment like this? We surrender. Romans says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. Saved from what? The penalty of sin, which is death and eternal separation from God. 
And someone, I, I've had someone say, well, if God loves us so much, how come he sends people to hell? God don't send people to hell. God loves us so much, he brought a solution so that no one would have to go to hell. People choose to go to hell by rejecting him. And it's that salvation that's available now. You say, what are we going to do? I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. If that's you, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. But you say, Pastor, that's me. I want to be included in the prayer you're about to pray. I want right now to receive the gift of salvation. Would you just raise your hand just as an act of surrender? That's me right now in this place. I want to respond. Yes, yes, yes. Just come on. Anybody else, just raise your hand. I'm just going to pray right there, right where you're at. Okay, you put your hands down. Let's pray this together. Say, Jesus... I need you. I surrender my life to you. I'm asking you, be my Lord, be my Savior. Forgive me of all of my sins, all the things that I've done wrong. Wash them away. Right now, I receive new life in you. Thank you for loving me and giving me a fresh start right now in Jesus' name. Come on, church, celebrate God this morning.